Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who's figuring out how Southeast Asia is transforming as a region of great potential. And in my spare time, I want to learn more about the C Group and the shifting trends of digital entertainment, e-commerce and financial services across Southeast Asia. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Sante Tan, Satira Thai, Group Chief Economist at the C Group. Welcome, Santi, as I think this is the short form way of calling you. And it's great to have you here for the first time. Thank you, Bernard. It's great to be here. So we met at the World Economic Forum and I understand that you have also spoke there about some of the interesting trends of Southeast Asia that's ongoing there. But today I wanted to get to know you better. And how do you start your career? Yeah, no, I started my career in a policy stroke academic world, actually. So my first job was at the Ministry of Finance in Thailand, especially created unit at the time, which is an internal think tank for doing policy analysis and advisory. And I also part on the side being the visiting lecturer at the Faculty of Economics at Chulalongkorn University, which is one of the premier universities in Thailand. I then went on from policy and academic world to a master in international development at the Harvard Kennedy School and went on to do a PhD, so total five years there. Having graduated from there, I did what a lot of good Kennedy School student does, which is joining the investment bank. So I joined Credit Suisse, moved to Singapore and spent eight years there analyzing ASEAN economies as well as other emerging Asian economies. My last position there was the chief economist for the emerging Asia so that means covering both ASEAN and also India and, and the North Asia, like Korea, Taiwan economies as well. So, so many years spending in the investment world, talking to investors how to invest in this region. How do you end up in C Group then as a group chief economist? Yeah, so I guess one common thread that ran out through my career was I'm always keen watcher and thinker looking at the Southeast Asia region and always believe that there's a lot of hidden potential to be tapped and to be explored in this region. And even though the region has been seeing pretty good growth, you know, 5% on average, which is pretty good even among an emerging market economy in the world today, I always feel that there's something missing, that, you know, something could be better. If I were to use a sport analogy, then I probably feel that it's a sports team that have yet to see a sort of breakout season. So there's something missing, you need some star player or you need some coach. I think I arrived at a conclusion maybe a few years ago that perhaps that missing piece is the technology or the digital technology that we see today that um, are potentially unlocking some of this hidden potential in the Southeast Asia region. And that's why I think you become very, very fascinated by this sector. C Group is very well positioned to really pushing the frontier on, on that respect and helping the region sort of achieve its full potential as a, one of the largest consumer market and one of the most vibrant economy in the world. You have a very interesting career. Started from academia and subsequently going into private sector, working in investment banking and now basically working to help to figure out how a top tier Southeast Asia internet company, how do they expand across this region that is growing. In your career journey, what are the interesting career lessons that you can share with my audience? Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question. I think there's, there are many of them, but first thing that came to mind is perhaps being humble. You know, that sometimes is often being mistaken as with a lack of confidence, but it's not that at all. I think it's much more about being grounded, about keeping your mind open, knowing yourself, and allow you to see things as they are. Having moved to, you know, across the boundaries from the policy academy to finance and now to tech, I think one thing that allow me to adapt, if not even proactively, seeking changes that disrupt itself from time to time is that uh, humility that allows you to open up and learn new things. 
I think it makes you not just a better analyst and thinker, but increasingly becoming essential part to become a leader as well. Because um, when you want to shape the team, uh, you want to have that good open learning culture, which allows not just yourself, but the whole team to adapt to different changes and get ahead of the game. I think that has allowed me to very much enjoy all the transitions I have made. Actually, interestingly enough, you asked earlier about why, why I joined C Group. It's actually one of our core values here as well. So that's one way I most resonate with is being humble is one of the core values of the company. That very nicely comes into the main subject of the day. I want to do two things. One is to, of course, talk about the C Group, which is also formerly to most some people in the Southeast Asia region. We know them as Garena formerly. And then the second part of this conversation, where we'll be focusing on talking a little bit about some of the interesting trends that are going on in the Southeast Asia region. To start off the introduction, C Group is a leading consumer internet company in Southeast Asia, focusing on three areas, digital entertainment, e-commerce, and financial services, founded by Forest Lee. Xiaodong, who actually have an engagement previously in one of my last media startups where I actually interviewed him. And that was the only written interview that he had with a local media outlet. And then second, and it started as Garena, but which was originally focused on gaming in Southeast Asia. And it has a list of very famous group of investors. And one of them probably everybody now knows is one of the BAT giants, Tencent. So it's currently listed in New York Stock Exchange as SE with a market capitalizations depending on these few days where you look at it is about US 4.8 billion. And of course, that will also change. But so to start off, maybe can you briefly introduce the history of C Group and also its current mission and vision of the company? Definitely. So the company started as nine and it's basically the, the mission is to use technology to empower and improve lives of the consumer and small business in the region. The region, the home court, is seven countries. So ASEAN six, including Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, plus Taiwan as well. And across this region, we operate three key platforms. One is the one you mentioned, uh, Garena, which is our original gaming and esports platform. It is the most popular online game platform in the region and a big proponent of the esports as well. The second one is Shopping, which is the e-commerce. We are number one e-commerce platform in Southeast Asia and uh, Taiwan in terms of both total orders and the gross merchandise value of shortened as GMV. It is the youngest company. It's about, about three years old. And we have also a digital financial service called AdPay, which provide infrastructure of support for the first two businesses, but also have its own separate use cases, over 100 abuse cases. We are one of the most extensive e-payment players in this region as well. So those are the three main businesses in the region. And I think the common theme running across all three is we're trying to serve the underserved part of the market. So Garena is about bringing the best games and entertainment to, to everyone, whether you have a high-spec or low-spec smartphone, trying to groom the esports heroes so that they have ability to earn and have a career. Uh, we shop is about helping the SMEs, the micro entrepreneurs get to the market. And digital financial service is about tapping into the unbanked population, which is still a majority of the population in this region. I can definitely attest to the fact that esports is actually growing, given that I'm also advising the Singapore Cyber Sports and Gaming Association. And they were trying to advocate as a good use of computer gaming in the space. But I want to ask you this, what is your role and coverage with the C Group as their chief group economist? Yeah, that's always an interesting question, a common question I get as well. It is quite a unique thing for the region, at least. In short, I would say the role of group chief economist is in charge of research, insights, and public policy. 
And the mission is really to create better understanding about what drives the digital economy, the different facets in this region, and trying to make C group into a thought leader, then work with policymakers with this newfound knowledge and insights to help contribute to the development of the digital ecosystem. So it's quite unique, but I think it's partly because C group, our company, is in a unique position. We don't have that many regional tech companies in this region. Technically, we are not unicorn anymore because we already went IPO. But in this region, if you talk about a technology company, people tend to think of the US-based ones or the China-based ones. But we don't really have one that already went IPO and being a fully regional company. So I think in that sense, I felt that the company needs that thought leadership position, need to be the contributor to the East Coast system to, to push the frontier in the region. And that's why they, I think they need a position, this position to, to help them do that. You have already illustrated that C Group currently is structured with three key business lines, which is digital entertainment, e-commerce, and financial services. So my follow-up question to you is like, for example, in each of these categories, what are the key businesses that drives them? And maybe some of the products that you have mentioned, for example, Garena for eSports, Shopee for e-commerce, and Epe for financial services. Yeah, perhaps start with the Garena. Garena side, we have been a big players in terms of both online games and esports. So games like we are in the part one, I think is a distributor of a publisher of games in this region because the popular games are League of Legends, like uh, Arena of Valor. And we are very active in the esports space. One of our big event is called Garena World. The last one was held in Thailand and it's amazing turnout. We have over two days, 240,000 people turn up offline and 10 and a half million we will watch online. You can see, you can feel that actually esports in this region is being more and more accepted. It's growing very fast. And it's amazing to see that uh, in Thailand, people who turn up to watch these are not just younger generations, but actually some of the parents, also some of the older population also come and watch as well. So I think that's also a good indication that this industry is really growing. Second part of our business now, which is quite, quite relatively new, is also game developments. So we moved into having our own studio and doing game development late last year, where we launched our first game called Free Fire. That started in December. It is actually one of the now one of the most popular games, not just in the region, but it's actually become very popular in places like Brazil as well, surprisingly. So our actually product manager now have to travel to Brazil from time to time because the game is doing so well. We have daily active user there about. 16 million people and it's still growing. What's interesting about this is that I mentioned earlier that one of the key philosophy of the firm is trying to serve the underserved market. So one thing we noticed is that game is moving very quickly to mobile, but in emerging markets, a lot of consumers still don't have the highest spec of mobile phones. And so sometimes they play games, they have problems, they shoot latency, they have uh, hiccups. So we developed this game, Free Fire, which is a battle royale game, specifically designed to be shorter and to be optimized so for a lower spec phone so that the emerging market consumers can enjoy. And I think that's the, really the secret drivers for both Brazil and, and in the region as well, why doing so well. At the e-commerce side, we have Shopee. The key of Shopee is the consumer-to-consumer -consumer marketplace. We do have serve a lot of the SMEs and micro entrepreneurs around the region. Again, I think the key here is that we noticed that markets are moving very quickly into mobile first. And so Shopee is actually, even though it's called e-commerce, I think that's probably the right way to describe it. It's more like mobile first, a social-centric e-commerce platform. 
What that means is that it's making a lot of the social commerce, which is very, very vibrant in this region, much easier to do. For if you are micro-entrepreneurs, you are selling, say, eyelashes in the islands of Bali, and this is actually a real example. Sometimes offline, you struggle because the rent is not cheap and you, you struggle to sell and expand your sales across even your island of Bali in Indonesia, but you know how do you also reach tens of thousands of islands around you? But it comes in the e-commerce perspective, and that allows you to scale without having to have hundreds of sales force, uh, without having to have many, many branches. And I think that's where you know, Shopee has become very powerful. Very important part of Shopee is uh, the offline workshop we run in order to help many of these micro-entrepreneurs to go online and use the digital tools. We have in Indonesia alone about 30,000 uh, entrepreneurs that we have worked with. It's spanning over 30 cities. And the interesting about the thing about it is that more than two-thirds of these are female. So it's a very, you know, inclusive growth environment. And I think from economists like me, that, that's something that's very exciting. And how about financial services then with AdPay then? Yeah, so AdPay is very much tapping into the, the unbanked or an underbanked population in the region. It's still actually still very, very underpenetrated in terms of banking services. So less than, I think, 40% have access to banking service have bank accounts. And if you look at the share of transaction that's done online is even smaller. It's something like 2-3% of total consumption. Just to give perspective, that's compared to China of like 30%. And so what we do in AppPay is we allow these unbanked people to have go to AppPay counters to other offline places, could be mom and pop shops near your villages, and you can top up, use a reverse ATM process where you just top up your cash. And once your cash go into a digital wallet, then you can use it for hundreds of use cases. You can buy movie tickets, you can pay utility bills, and of course, you can spend it on Korea and spend it on Shopee as well. I think that's how we sort of bring the, the offline people into the digital ecosystem and serve them. And hopefully, you know, we can do a lot, many things down the road with that as well. How does C monetize through their different assets? Like, for example, Garena, Shopee, and AirPay then? The monetization strategy for Garena is mainly buying cosmetics and upgrades to your character. We don't do a pay to win, but you can buy various upgrades to make your character look nicer. Most of the games are free to play. Uh, but you can buy all these in-game items. For Shopee, it's mainly focused around the value-added services that we provide to the sellers. So this could be advertising, this could be the logistics and fulfillment services that we offer. So as we grow bigger over time, and we have been growing, you know, something like 170, 180% per year, we are already the biggest in the region. We get much more data about our customers on both sides, the sellers and consumers. And that allows us to leverage use big data in order to give them a more tailored service, customized service for these sellers. And usually for those services that we, that we can monetize some of them are value added. And AirPay for the financial services side, other than doing transactions, what's the monetization model then? Yeah, so AirPay right now, we are focusing on using it to integrate and support the first two businesses. So monetization mainly come from the first two and AirPay 
being the infrastructure that support the two the two business for now. It makes me feel that C Group is a combination of Tencent and Alibaba because it has the focus of digital entertainment and e-commerce, and then there's a financial services layer on top of it. But for Southeast Asia, what is the current footprint of C Group in Southeast Asia? For example, are certain areas of focus are more dominant in certain geographies? Yeah, the way we we approach Southeast Asia is is quite unique, I, I would think, and that's also what I like about the strategy. It's very very localized. So we like to say that Southeast Asia or ASEAN, we talk about them as one region, but the reality is it's so diverse. Um, you know, we have places with GDP per capita of around two thousand US dollar, ranging from that to you know fifty thousand plus like in Singapore. So it's a huge range, very different across countries, very different barriers, constraints, taste and preference. So we need to go hyper-localization. What that means is that we actually have different versions of the apps. Like for example, Shopee, we actually have seven versions of the app and they're all different in all, in all these countries, not just the languages, but also the tabs would be different. There'll be some unique tabs that that is available in some countries, but not in others. And there's also recommendation of products and things are all different. So the way we do that, that's why the strategy for approaching each country is also quite different as well. For example, Shopee, we are, you know, very quite big in Indonesia and Taiwan. And in Indonesia, there will be a special tab for Shopee called uh, Triasti Nusantara. What well, that is, the pile together all the local products because there's so many islands, there's so many very beautiful crafts, batiks and garments. We compile all that local good stuff, if you will, into one tab to help both help the local sellers from the region, but at the same time to make it easier for customers to discover tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these local products all in one tab. And that worked very well for us in Indonesia, but it's not something that you can do perhaps in Singapore. So it's very different in, in different countries. Garina business is very big in, in Thailand. As I mentioned earlier, Garina World, one of our flagship events is in Thailand, drawing it's very, very vibrant esport. And we actually have one of the largest mobile games tournaments coming up, and that's going to be in December. And that's the uh, Arena Valor uh, competition. So that's coming up in, in December. It's going to be very exciting. It's both contributing not just to the local economy, but it's actually helping to draw some tourism as well. So there's a tie-up sort of between the esport and the tourism angle there too. And that's quite unique. And it's very played to the strength of Thailand being the tourism spot for, for the region as well. Arena of Valor is also Honor of Kings in China. We have done a previous episode on this and they are one of the third killer app for Tencent itself that's actually been spread out to the Southeast Asia market. So I want to switch gears to talk about Southeast Asia, the trends, uh, some of the interesting topics of interest that you and I have conversations during the World Economic Forum. So the first question I want to start off by asking you, what are the common misconceptions about e-commerce in ASEAN region. I mean, when we define ASEAN, it's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which I think constitute about 10 countries. I think the first thing that comes to mind is that when we talk about e-commerce, people tend to think first about the potential disruptions to the existing retail, like the uh, department store, the malls, and the traditional retail. They haven't perhaps focused enough on the other side, which is about empowerment. And I think that's really, really important part for, for this region because the offline retail in many places are still somewhat underdeveloped. And there's so many SMEs. In fact, the small and medium, medium scale enterprises make up about 
99% of enterprises in the region. It accounts for about 83% of employment in the region and about 50% of GDP. So the huge part of, of this economy that's really the hidden growth engine that you have to really bring them into the formal economy. You have to bring them into the digital economy. And e-commerce is one very powerful way of, of doing that. When we recently advised a study by Bain and Co to look at the whole region. And we found that almost 80% of SMEs we survey, over 2,000 of them in the region, do see digital technology more broadly as an uh, opportunity, but the adoption is, is quite low uh, still. And the biggest problem, number one-sided, is a problem around lack of education or lack of understanding and digital literacy. So there's a lot of rooms for, I think, the private sector to work together, the public sector, to improve that. And that's why what we have been investing a lot in is to doing this kind of offline workshops we call Shopee University to tens of thousands of the sellers in the region in order to get them online and give them this, this tool. The result has been quite amazing. And the study itself found that on average, you can see about you know 20% increase in, in sales. But I think that's on average. There's many, many cases where we see that after a year or so, you could see you know, 50 to 100 folds increase in sales and comes with it also the big productivity gains. So it's a huge empowerment tool. It helps the female entrepreneur very much because many women in the region sometimes get out of the labor market when they have kids, children. But e-commerce allows them to maybe start that as a hobby of selling to your friends and family first. But many of them found that the business took off and in fact, they're doing so well that the husband would actually leave his permanent job in order to help the wife expand the business. So it helps a woman, it helps bring about a more inclusive economy. We also see big trends that a lot of the sales are happening outside the capital region. So in Indonesia, again, roughly about two thirds, I think, of the sales are happening outside the Jakarta area. So this is how you, you achieve, I think, both the more dynamic growth engines while uh, ensuring inclusiveness as well. There are a lot more interesting issues about e-commerce in ASEAN region. I think in my past job, I work on e-commerce logistics where actually going in Jakarta is not the problem because it's a first tier city similar to Singapore, Singapore, similar to Kuala Lumpur. But once you go into a second and third tier city, the e-commerce fulfillment is a total challenge. And part of the way how e-commerce is structured is also building the pipes and the railroads to make the economy to drive. Do that also constitute part of the challenges in how people think about e-commerce in the ASEAN region then? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's both the payment side and the logistics side are both a constraint and opportunities in some ways. It's definitely a constraint that put a lid on the e-commerce a little bit. But at the same time, it also means that the region is still very much under tap in terms of e-commerce. So if you look at the share it's roughly about share of e-commerce and total offline consumption, offline sales is about 2-3% for this region. That compares to close to 20% in China. So definitely huge room to grow if you can unlock some of these constraints. Logistics is definitely one of them, but it is somewhat getting better around the region, both on the hard infrastructure side because governments like Thailand and like Indonesia are investing more in infrastructure and then trying to cut down some of the red tapes. But of course, more work needs to be done. On the payment side, there's also a big push in the region, like in Singapore government, like in Thailand government, to move towards uh, digital payments, cashless payments. And I think that's where it's important to for private sector side to also try to come up with a unique solution for the region. In Shopee, we offer very 
various modes of payments. So you can also go and pay at the convenience store near you because they're quite extensive convenience store and then we're in a region like places like Thailand or Indonesia. But we also have a system called Shopee Guarantee because we noticed that one of the key issues is that, you know, when people pay through bank transfer, then they're not sure whether a product will arrive or not. And, you know, it's going to be the t-shirt that I ordered or not. What we do is we establish an escrow system whereby the consumer have to actually confirm that they have received the product in order the payments to be released from the escrow accounts to the sellers. So that's you know, one of the ways we sort of get over the problem of trust and the payments using the technology. Which comes to the other interesting point, right? Currently, what I understand is that 70% of the ASEAN population are still relatively young people. So what I'm going to ask is, how are the economies of Southeast Asia uh, changing in the larger scale macroeconomically? Are they actually moving in different ways? I mean, I typically like to break it into what I call developed, developing and frontier. They have different needs. They are on different parts of the development cycle. And because of the smartphone revolution, there's leapfrogging. If you were to look at a country like Myanmar, which is a total frontier economy today, it is actually just leapfrog with the smartphone. I think it went from 100,000 smartphones to now 40 million smartphones in just less than five years. How do you see these economies changing in the past decade? Yeah, it's very much like the sport analogy that I told you at the beginning. I think it's always, the potential has always been there. But looking at economists, you always feel that it's done okay. 5% growth average is definitely quite good with world standards. But it's still missing that key ingredient to really unleash this really young population. This is 600 plus million population, more than half are millennials. So they are pretty digital tech savvy. And I think what has changed quite importantly in the past few years is this youthful population start to have access to internet through smartphones. One of the problems in the past was that, you know, coverage of the fixed broadband is quite limited, especially in some countries. But now you see this smartphone penetration increasing dramatically from 20% just a few years ago to now close to 50%. That's really game changer because, you know, whether you are sellers in the remote islands of Indonesia or in mountains of Thailand, now you can access internet. That leads to process of discovery, a discovery of new products that consumers you never know exist. And a discovery from the seller side as well, that they can try new ideas that they know there's a market for it. One good example in Thailand that leading to actually to a new form, new trade is where we, we have one of SMEs that we help. It's just sort of a client of the, the domestic development banks. And and they sell sort of organic food and they sell this pickled fish, pasteurized pickled fish, which is a local delicacy in Thailand. And they were struggling. But then when we help them go online, the product becomes discovered. And then the Thai consumers are like, oh, wow, you can actually buy this online and become wildly popular. And then from that step, it saw like about 150% increase in sales in just about three, four months. And because then it become popular. It, uh, it is discovered by the export-import uh, companies who say, hey, how would you like to actually export this to Australia, to Philippines, to Vietnam, to around the region? And then now it's become an uh, export company, despite still really technically being the SME firms. So, you know, this technology, this e-commerce allowed them to become a multinational companies, if you will, over time, even if they're still quite small. So I think that's something that's quite exciting to see in the region and it's all enabled by i mean first step is that smartphone and once they realize this trend is happening the government is also changing its stance it's also doubling down on this uh, digital economy we have thailand 4.0 as a 
policy strategy of the Thai government. We have Indonesia 4.0 as well. And around the region, they are putting more and more emphasis and more resources into driving the digital economy. And what I hope to see is that, you know, this drive towards digital economy goes back to also solve the offline constraints. Like, Bernard, like what you have mentioned about the logistic infrastructure, which is still the key bottlenecks. So if you want to support this and you start to go back to invest in logistic infrastructure, not just the hardware, the roads uh, and, and rail, but also the soft infrastructure by cutting down rate tapes, rules and regulation that inhibit businesses. I think that's going to be a very good trend that I want to see in the future. I think that a lot of people grossly overestimated the market size of Southeast Asia, but also underestimated that the amount of infrastructure that is built in this region will actually transform it into what I call the breakout economy in the future. And I think this is what you have been alluding to. I want to understand a little bit more about the digital economy within the region. What are the more interesting key trends other than the increase of smartphone adoption? Do you see some very interesting behavioral trends in terms of a young population adopting digital applications and also how they go about their day-to-day life. I mean, financial inclusion is probably one of the biggest thing that's happening in digital economy. I mean, with a smartphone today, with what you're doing with payments is to try to bring forth a larger financial inclusion into the market. So can you talk a little bit more about some of these trends in the digital economy within Southeast Asia? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you mentioned, you know, going more into digital payments, that's, that's just one, one thing. And another one which I, I, I find very interesting is the very rapid growth in the social commerce. And I think that there's many, many probably sub-trends that, that goes into to that. Being going mobile is one of them. But it's also that how do you establish trust in this region? And a lot of the times it's about you know, having chance to talk your sellers first. Yes, the, I think consumers in the region, consumers, they look at ratings, but that's probably not the number one. They also need to establish a bit of relationship talking to the sellers. They want to know a little bit more product, know a little bit more about the sellers before they can trust and actually establish resulting in transactions. And I think that's why it's very important to have a very good seamless uh, chat functions in, in terms of uh, doing e-commerce apps. And, and that's something that we you know, place a lot of focus on in terms for, for Shopee. Um, because Shopee is in some ways you can say it's a platformification of the social commerce. So we make the social commerce much easier to do. So you can talk to your sellers, get to know them better. And then once you move the payments, instead of having to move out of the apps, you can do all in one. You don't have to leave the app at all. You can do the payments and you can track your product, your goods, where it is in the same app and even raise disputes if there's any issues. You can do all in one app. And that social commerce is already been, you know, you can say it's more informal part of e-commerce. It has been there for a long time. It's been growing very rapidly. We still need more data to understand them. But once they start the platformification process, doing this all in one platform like Shopee, you, that's why we're seeing a very rapid growth in the adoption of Shopee. I think relating to that trend is also that the line is between the social, the entertainment and commerce is now being more blurred, if you will. The engagement with the app becomes very important. You don't want people to just open apps when they want to shop, but you want to make that a fun experience, entertaining experience. And there are various ways to do that. One is 
sometimes you have very flash sales uh, deals that sometimes people enjoy browsing through so they open more often different times of days in order to see whether they're good deals and there are consumers in this region like Malaysia and Singapore that really enjoy defining good deals so it's actually not just about getting the goods not just about convenience but it's actually entertaining for them they feel sense of you know victory that I found really really good discount deals we also have games because we have arena of course we have experience in doing a lot of entertainment and building games so we do a lot of mini games that people can play on Shopee in order to sometimes win coins and that coins can use to get discounts and, and buy products. This entertainment, this gamification may sound like a small thing, but it's actually it's very big in terms of driving engagement. And I think that's what you know being demanded from youth because shopping is no longer just about convenience, but it's also about entertainment. So how do you get them to engage? How do you get them to be more active on apps, open that more often and, and browsing through different things? That's become a grab their attention. I think that's a key thing for the young consumer in this region. And I think that there's one more key trend in our digital economy is actually making us look more similar to China as and India, whereas unlike the US, is the trend of the super app. That means one app to rule them all, right? I mean, if you think about what Grab and Gojek is doing with transportation, they are now trying to put in their own payment systems to try to drive the other services. I think you are also coming in into the super app world through e-commerce and through digital entertainment. Do you think that there will be some form of different super apps working in the region similar to what's happening in China rather than just one product focus, which is much more prevalent in Europe and the US markets? Yeah, no, it's a very interesting question. It's also a question we think about uh, quite a lot, but I think it's still early days. So I think go back to the point where this is a region filled with diversity, you know, it's so different in each country. So I think, yes, there, there will be app in which you can do more than one. I think the amount of product there will be synergies to be found. But we're very different across countries. So you may have apps that can do more than one thing in, in one country. But in Thailand, that in Thailand and that Indonesia, I think will look different from each other. So I think the localization uh, story will be very important still. I think for us, there's, uh, there's always synergies between the entertainment, e-commerce platform and the payments. But uh, the degree to which and how it manifested in different countries will be very different, adapting the local uh, circumstances. And it's not going to be, you know, like sort of one kind of super app fit all that the whole region will enjoy and see the same interface, the same thing. And I definitely think that this is a question that will require more and more answers as we go along in the next couple of years. I I want to ask you, given your background in economics, what are your thoughts on the current ongoing and escalating trade war between US and China? And what does it really mean for Southeast Asia? Yeah, that's a very good question. In fact, I was just at a Bloomberg event in Bali, a society event of the IMF World Bank, and precisely went uh, on the station to talk about this issue. You know, the key lessons I think we draw from the ongoing trade tension is that we have to think harder uh, in this region about the world in which what is the traditional trade global trade growth driven model is not going to be there for us as engines of growth anymore. And we have to find, diversify our engines of growth from that model to something perhaps relying more also on the domestic demand side and as well as the regional, intra-regional trade side. I think that's lesson number one. A second lesson is that we have to find, hopefully this growth engines, new growth engines that we find is going to be, have to be more inclusive. It has to hopefully drive down and reduce the inequality because remembering that part of the trade tensions 
one of the contributors to that around the world is the problem of rising inequality. So, and I think why I come back to this that digital trading platform, e-commerce, digital payments, these are exciting space precisely because it sort of meet both of, of, of potentially of the objectives. It is a powerful growth engine that would lead to new discovery of demand by tapping the underserved market where these underbanked people uh, having access to credit and uh, financial service, whether it's SMEs now that can see 50-fold increase in sales because they found uh, new, new, new customers um, in the region and even across the border, uh, whether it's uh, the game side where you know, now you have access to games that you don't have you don't have access before. I think all these things are the key theme that lead to new discovery of demand. And at the same time, it is more inclusive because you are tapping into the underserved part of the market. So that's why all the more important in a world with an escalating trade war, you need to find these kind of new growth engines and technology is one of the key enablers that, that can lead us there. With the trade war aside, I mean, we also looked at the Belt and Road Initiative from China, which is actually building more big infrastructure in Asia that connects all the way down to Indonesia from the sea and the land through all the way to Europe. Do you also foresee that the type of infrastructure building also changes the economies and also create new economic opportunities that we would not be trapped in a trade war situation like such? Yeah, no, definitely. I think the potential build out of the infrastructure in, in the region, I think it's, it's both good for the, I think it also sort of take both boxes as well that we just mentioned. First is that in and of itself, infrastructure could create new growth regions. It definitely can help spread out the economic developments from the capital regions onto neighboring cities and smaller tier cities. Actually, many countries here, governments, are trying to do that. And you see that Indonesia have this 10 new Bali's kind of promote destination. Thailand as well is trying to promote more the second and third tier cities as a tourism destination. Infrastructure will be absolutely key in driving that. And of course, infrastructure uh, will also be a key driving force to help unlock that next leg of the e-commerce growth as well. Because, you know, getting the goods to one from one place to another, that will be the key thing as well. I think it will play an important role. And through that process, it's also more inclusive because you're tapping into the region, which perhaps was underdeveloped due to lack of access to markets. So infrastructure will be be the key drivers uh, in the region. And then, of course, you know, the issue that follow will be the implementation, execution of those projects and the funding of those projects. And I think this will be a continuous story. And I definitely would like to get you back on the show to talk more about the evolution of Southeast Asia in the coming years. So, Santi, many thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And I would like to ask you in closing two questions. My first is, can you recommend a book, podcast or anything else that had an impact to your work and personal life recently? Well, podcast, definitely. I'm a fan of Analyze Asia, so I'm very happy to be here. About that. <laughs> Apart from Analyze Asia, I also listen to Behind the Numbers to get a trends on uh, e-commerce and digital economy uh, globally. I also listen to Work Life by uh, Adam Grant. So I'm also very interested in how to build a good team learning culture and try to make workplace a better. So I think that's something I, I listen to a lot too. In terms of books, I, I actually am a big fan um, of books like uh, Super Forecasting by Philip Tedlock, uh, which is, I think, pro- probably a bit more from my, my, my old job. I think it's still very relevant about how we look into the future. Being economist, I also like the book by Danny Roderick, Professor Roderick, or Economic Rules. Danny Roderick is actually one of my thesis advisors as well, so I still 
stock him and, and, and read his, his, his materials, which is still very enlightening. That's cool. I should probably check out some of these new books that you recommended. How do my audience find you? So I'm on LinkedIn mainly. If anybody is interested, you can also go to the C Group and check out what they are doing. And of course, you can Google me at Bernard Leung. And of course, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and most importantly, Spotify. Tweet to us and give us a five-star rating on iTunes so they can help us with discovery or give us a star on Overcast and Pocket Cast. And of course, most importantly, drop me your feedback. Santi, many thanks for coming on the show and share with us what uh, the C Group is doing, also the trends on Southeast Asia. And I look forward to see you again soon. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.